1: Hello and welcome to here's where it went wrong the podcast where every week we have on one of our favorite comedians to talk about one of their favorite things and we trace its history to find out exactly where it all went off the rails. I'm Windsor Powers. I'm joined as always by my co host Andrew Nadeau. Andrew, how you doing buddy?
2: I'm doing fantastic. We just had a great episode. We had Sarah Wren on, who I've known for quite a while now. She helped me when I first started getting into stand-up. Uh, she's done Just for Laughs. She's currently a writer for Letterkenny. She's doing just amazing, and she is so funny. And we had her on today to talk about video games, which she has a deep history in. It was so much fun.
1: I loved this so much. Uh, she she really knows her stuff. and I'm not saying that in like an oppressed, ooh, a girl knows video games way. Uh, <laughs> she just is very, very knowledgeable, and it's very fun when guests like to topics they're truly passionate about, which she is about video games because she could kick both of our asses in them oh, whenever she would please. Yeah.
2: No, it, it's it's so cool. And guys, you'll get to hear a bit about her history and being one of the very early streamers on YouTube for this and doing some very impressive stuff and just being generally much better at this than we are, which we always enjoy.
1: We're good at reading history that we've written down and pretending we know what we're talking about. And we, we stick to form here. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> we have other
2: skill sets guys so let's get right into it let's go Sarah Wren, thank you so much for joining us today.
3: Thanks for having me. That's the appropriate response, right? I'm so awkward with these things.
2: I mean, you don't have a lot of options.
3: Yeah, that's the
1: exact response we wanted. We're very glad that you're happy to be here.
2: Right. Occasionally, we hope that a guests will just say, you know what? Fuck you guys. I'm not doing this. But then we're stuck without a show. So, no, I'm, I'm really glad you're here. You and I have known each other for a while now. You helped me get started in stand-up and gave me advice and helped me write some stuff. Came through Chicago. It was so much fun and now I'm actually doing this, which is You've been a big help there. I want you to come on today to talk about video games, which Sarah's nodding, by the way. This is an audio medium. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to have a, a little trouble what? with this.
3: You can't hear the, the little air <laughs> from my neck as I, I'm nodding. Yeah.
2: The enthusiasm is clear. You have a background with this, though. I mean, you started on YouTube as like a kid, right?
3: Yeah. Oh my God. I was wondering if this is going to come up or if I could like pretend it's like a quirky little fact about myself. Yeah. <laughs> oh gosh. Yeah. Before I did stand up, I uh, was in the YouTube world of rating video games, which it's so funny because I've had so many um, just like followers and people that know me try to find it, but no one has been able to find it. Don't go for <laughs> it. I will go in and like- You've
1: scrubbed the
2: scrubbed internet
3: of yeah, this.
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. You're the one person who's ever been successful in scrubbing. Yeah,
3: yeah, basically. I
2: mean, you were pretty big here before this was a big thing on YouTube. You, you had a following.
3: Yeah, it was pretty wild because I'm not sure because I'm not really in the video game community anymore. But it was at a time when it was shocking for like a female gamer to be in the space and one that actually was like, really well versed. And it, now it seems like because we have Twitch, right? right? It's so commonplace. But it was at a time which sounds so funny that that even existed where for me to share my ideas was like, oh, oh, my God, this is new. And like, no one has done this before. <laughs>
2: that is so cool. Cool. And unfortunately, uh, guys, you and us can never find this, but it was a thing. <laughs>
1: yeah, it
3: existed. Sure, it existed. <laughs>
2: yeah.
1: No, but I'm curious, what, what games were you mainly into when you were like deep into it?
3: I, from the very beginning, have been like a first-person shooter, like gamer. So it was a lot of first-person shooters. I did a few like RPGs. I don't want to give any video games away because then you'll look it up and find <laughs> like, the actual the title. <laughs>
1: oh, that's very true. See, this is actually part of my plan. But what,
2: all right, how about what era was this? Like, what systems were you on at this time?
3: PC. Yeah, I was definitely like the only PC player when I first started
2: gaming. Oh, it was PC. Okay.
3: But you weren't like a
1: snob about it, right? Yeah, (laughs)
3: Yeah. Totally, yeah.
1: Fair enough, fair enough. My background is not that great. I just played like the party Nintendo 64 games at sleepovers. A lot of GoldenEye, a lot of Mario Kart, Super Smash Brothers, Mario Party, and then I've kind of continued on. I'll play those Nintendo games in party settings. And the only ones that I'll really like get super into are like if they drop a new like Batman Arkham or a Spider-Man. I did do the Kingdom Hearts ones, but that's because I'm an embarrassing human being. A truly <laughs> embarrassing human being.
2: So when, when I was little, so my, my little sister was born when I was five, and my parents wisely thought we need a distraction for me and my older sister. So I got the regular Nintendo with Super Mario. This was my introduction and loved it. From then on, I, I had the Super Nintendo, the N64. It was mostly Nintendo for a while. The PlayStation 2. I stopped for a while. That was mostly when I was younger. And then I know we've covered my health issues on this show before. I have issues with concentration causing dizziness and nausea. And nausea combined with the moving of video games is a really tough combination. Uh, so it's one of those things where I'd play for like 20 minutes and be like, okay, guys, well, we got to stop because I'm, I'm going to go throw up. Uh, so that is really becomes not worth it very quickly. So it's only something I recently started trying Trying again once my girlfriend started getting into it, and we realized so much of this was movement-based that caused an issue. That we started trying to find games that were turn-based instead. Which I mean, it, it's it's been good. It's got me slowly back into it, but I still cannot do anything that would be considered challenging or impressive in the video game sphere. Where you know the idea of moving a camera and a gun at the same time is the most stressful thing in the world to me. It is is feels like so much pressure, and I realize nausea is a big factor of that. But also, it doesn't seem easy in general.
1: Yeah, you know what? Also. Caused- causes a lot of pressure, Andrew. Yeah. Carrying a gun. Yeah. You know, experiencing the video game the way it was meant to be
2: experienced. <laughs>
3: yeah, having people try to kill you. Does, <laughs> no, let's not forget about
2: that. Yeah. I mean, honestly, you're right. It's probably more realistic. I would be very nauseous if that was happening to me in real life. I, I'm i getting very close to what this is actually be like. So, yeah, so it's, it's something I've I've been enjoying a bit more recently, but still not much. And I do remember thinking I was fairly good at video games when I was a kid, but recently I retried the original Mario. And I had never beaten it because I thought the final level was just one where I was never fast enough. I could get there in like 20 minutes and then it would spend the entire time until time ran out just running. Like only a few years ago did I try it again and then go online and find out that you were supposed to be going through the pipes and there was a correct order here. So probably about three to 400 times my youth did I just run to a game that was in a pure loop and was the exact same background over and over again until you went through a pipe. So overall, probably wasn't that great at it.
1: Yeah, no, it sounds like you were horrible.
2: Yeah. so yeah that was our history with this are you guys playing anything currently
3: so i've expanded i'd say uh during covid very proud of myself i'm not as much of a snob and an elitist in video games anymore so right now i am playing the sequel to ori i don't know it's like wild wisps of the forest or something like that so it's a fairly small kind of indie game originally i played it on pc on steam but then now i'm playing a sequel on xbox um so i'm trying Finish that up it's like a action puzzle platformer basically you just have to like memorize a shit ton of moves and like mash the buttons like crazy so that you can swing and jump and do things it's very frustrating sometimes but what once you do that combo and you get through a part it's it's really satisfying and then the second game that i'm also playing i usually play like a lot of games all at once whichever i'm in the mood for so the second one is subnautica and it's you play as a diver and you just like explore and have to rebuild mech and capture fish and eat it's like a survival game until you get captured until they find you and rescue but they also threw in like aliens randomly into it so sometimes you need aliens yeah you gotta
1: jazz it up a little bit
3: what if you're a (laughs) diver but then there's also aliens so that's like (laughs) subnautica (laughs) without giving anything away yeah without giving anything away
2: that's obviously what we assumed it would be about i'm currently playing divinity original sin which was a a bit older we started with divinity original sin 2 because again we we're looking for, my girlfriend and I were looking for some couch co-op games, which I'm surprised there are not more of these, but I get it. Everything is online now. Now, for like the past 15 years, it's all been online. <laughs> this is not a new development. I've just gotten back into it. So, and, and she's very much into D&D in real life. And I think this is her way of trying to get me more into it uh, because it is very RPG based, but it's, it's been good. The second one was significantly better. Right, we, right now, we've just been getting frustrated and playing less and less often, but it, it's been fun. And I really did enjoy the second one a lot. Yeah,
1: I'm, I'm with you on the, oh yeah, games are online now, because I got the Friday the 13th game, which is, uh like, I was like, oh, it'll, like, randomly generate you as a camper or Jason Voorhees, and it's like, <laughs> oh, like, it's beginning to be fall, so that's going to be a lot of fun, and then, like, I set it up, and they're like, this game only works online, and I was like, ah, well, <laughs> nevertheless.
2: <laughs> this is a new one, though. This isn't, like, Friday Nights with Freddy. What was that one called? Five
1: Nights with Freddy? No, this Five is nights, an yeah. actual Friday the 13th officially licensed game. Wow.
3: It's actually so fun. Have you played it? Oh yeah, I've played it, but not, I wouldn't say it. I've really like gotten into it, but I've been watching the streams of it and it's just like people screaming and like running away. <laughs> uh, the, the streams of people playing it online have been very entertaining. I
2: feel like this is immediately not a game for me because I imagine like I'm very comfortable just closing my eyes during scary movies and it feels like that would be a pretty big hindrance if you're trying this same move mid-game.
3: Oh no, I like tape them open a while I'm Playing. yeah
1: if you're trying to actively participate
3: yeah. in the scary movie <laughs>
2: um, so but I what I know how much you love the horror movies, so I'm, I'm glad they've now made a game for you but you have to get online to do it <laughs> and
1: I'm always online I, it should be a perfect uh, combination but I just like refuse to figure out how to do it
2: and also I don't I don't want to play with people I don't know I feel like they're gonna be chatty I don't want to deal with that <laughs> I, I feel like these are all very sad old man things to complain about about I don't want to talk to strangers on the internet but I don't I I want to sit quietly with my video game and use it as an escape from reality, which having to talk to other people hinders significantly. So that's all right. That's our current experience. And Sarah had some good and accurate taste of where it went wrong. But first, let's get into the history a little bit. So I started digging into this and obviously it's tech, which means I can only go so far back, which always disappoints me. But the first video game by rough standards is an interactive electronic game with an electronic display. So the first one by these standards appeared in 1947. <laughs> it was called the cathode ray tube Amusement device. Ooh. Very catchy brand name. Yeah,
1: right? It just sounds like it was presented along with, like, cigarettes during the commercial break of an old (laughs) sitcom. Yeah,
2: well, I mean, the the cathode ray ray tube was significant in the evolution of television. Like, cool, we're just going to go right into that. And uh, the the game simulated an artillery shell which would be shown arcing towards targets on the cathode ray tube screen controlled by players adjusting knobs to change the trajectory of a beam spot on the display (laughs) to reach plastic targets that would be overlaid on the screen.
3: How human. We just love shooting things. Yeah, right?
1: <laughs> the first thing was a shooting game. Fantastic.
2: Yeah, and then they would have it disperse at the end so you've got a bunch of dots to create an explosion effect.
3: Oh, yeah. We love destroying things. Yeah, <laughs>
2: <laughs> It's remarkably on brand for all of the future of video games, but it's not considered the first true video game by many because it was entirely analog. There is no digital computer or memory device to execute a program. So the invention was patented but never manufactured or marketed to the public. The first true video games requiring computing power appeared soon after, and these were originally as technology demonstrations. In 1950, Birdie the Brain was created, and it was on this 13-foot-tall computer and allowed users to play tic-tac-toe against an artificial intelligence. And it's considered by many to be the first video game. Obviously, people still debate it based on exactly how complex it is. In 1951, you had Nimrod, which is a custom computer designed to play Nim, a mathematical strategy game. You have multiple groups of objects, for example, matchsticks. Players must remove one, but can remove as many objects from a single pile of they wish and depending on the version you're playing the goal is to either take or not take the last object what (laughs)
3: that would be be so mind-blowing like if i back in that time
2: yeah well no this this was an ancient game that they had put on onto the computer so you know again the way i set up was basically you had matchsticks lined up like bowling pins but slightly larger numbers so then you can take from one row one or as many as you want and the object being to force your opponent to either have one left or you get the very last one so they wanted to set this up as a technology demonstration of computing ability, but people just wanted to play it. Nobody cared about the computing ability. They just wanted to play this. And this was set up uh, where they used light bulbs that would light up or be removed. So again, there's some debate whether or not it was the first one. This one was much smaller on a, only a 12-foot computer. Ooh. <laughs> You're getting getting better much quickly. <laughs> so various other games were built, generally simulating real-world board games, but typically still just to explore programming or as demonstrations. Possibly the first game made just for entertainment was Tennis for Two, which featured moving graphics on an oscilloscope where two players controlled a ball bouncing over a net, or more realistically, a circle moving over a rectangle. Uh, So due to computing technology becoming smaller and faster, by the end of the 50s, the ability to work on them was opened up to university employees and undergrad students, and this led to more games being created for non-academic purposes. Space War, exclamation point, was being the the first to be available outside of a single research institute, and this featured two spaceships, a triangle and a line engaged in a dogfight while moving... <laughs> the description of this is so epic. They're engaged in a dogfight while maneuvering in the gravity well of a star. But you've got a you've got a small triangle and a small line that are moving around the screen and, and you know, shooting vaguely at each other. But it, it actually was affected by gravity at this point. It has far more details than the last ones because you actually are putting physics into the gameplay here.
1: I will say, it makes sense that they were, like, giving it such a grand, like, beautiful scope considering, yeah. <laughs> like... Think about the games you play as a kid, like I played Goldeneye and I was like, oh, this is basically a movie Yeah. That I'm right now. <laughs> and if I watched it now, it's dog shit. It is like literally like basically a triangle and a line going around the screen.
2: No, for every new system, it was these are the most amazing graphics ever. And then you look at the one from like 10 years ago you thought was the best you could possibly get. And you're like, this is incredible. I could have drawn something like this in fourth grade. <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> but the the concept here was still really what was, was growing throughout the 60s, an increasing number of programmers wrote computer games, sometimes even sold commercially in catalogs, but the audience for games expanded beyond research institutions, and programming languages that could run on multiple types of computers were now created, just allowing for a wider variety of games to be developed. So, in 1971, we see the formation of the video game industry with the first coin-operated video game, Computer Space. And this was also the first commercially available game, and it was, as pretty much all of the first video games were, a derivative of space war. It had a rocket controlled by the player engaging in a missile battle with AI-controlled flying saucers. The creators, Nolan Bushnell and Teb Dabney, used a $4,000 computer, about $27,000 today, they thought it would be powerful enough to run four games of spaceware at once, and it wasn't, <laughs> just not at all. <laughs> so while trying to figure out if they could replace parts with purpose-built hardware to make it more powerful, they realized they could build a system exclusively for running a game rather than general programs for much cheaper, like as low as $100.
1: That is a huge jump from $4,000 to $100. I know it's an old time money, but that is still just a gigantic leap.
2: Oh yeah. I mean, it's still only around like 600 today for a brand new technology. That's insane. And they also had, if you scored more hits in the enemy spaceship within a set amount of time, you'd win a free round of gameplay. So the next pay to play game was Galaxy Game, also a derivative of Space War. In fact, it was almost exactly the same with some updates, like being able to have faster ships and torpedoes, remove the star and gravitational field.
3: Make the ships faster. I could just imagine someone like yeah. <laughs> working in the, in the-
2: Yeah, but they wanted to keep it true to form. And because of that, they thought they were so superior to computer space because they were staying so true to form with slight updates. But their initial prototype cost them $20,000, about $128,000 a day. Bushnell and Dabney even came to them and said, look, we're we're not only releasing a similar game first, but we've developed a way to do it significantly cheaper. But Pitts and Tuck, the creators of Galaxy Game, were so convinced that theirs was better. When they got theirs released, it cost 10 cents per game or 25 cents for three. And by the time of installation, they had spent sixty five thousand dollars, or four hundred and two thousand dollars a day, to make a game that already existed last year for a hundred bucks per game, and they also had like no real business plan or for marketing or distribution or anything to get it off the ground. So it went it went under very quickly. Meanwhile, the inventors of computer space went on to form Atari.
3: Prototyping, you sly mistress! I feel like <laughs> even today, it, it's like the you know secret person behind that's like. <laughs> Yeah.
2: <laughs> well, and, no, and it was huge. And part of what they, they did here to be so significant was they, they had it placed in arcades. It made over $1 million, but it did perform a bit more poorly in bars and arcades where pinball and other arcade games were typically placed. Their backer, Nutting, had much higher expectations, expecting to sell over 1,500 units. So Bushnell and Dabney, yeah, they immediately started working on another game, but now founding their own company uh, to back their projects. They formed Atari. They were going to try a driving game, believed to be too complicated as a first project, so suggested an alternative game based on ping pong, which obviously was pong and sold over eight Thousand units. It was released in 1972 and was just hugely popular. That combined with one other major release changing industry in the first home video game console, the Magnavox Odyssey. That
1: is awesome. Yeah. I played Pong all the time when I was a kid. It came on, I had it on the Nintendo View, you know, like the one where it's like literally like a headset on a stand and you just like slam your face up against it. I played Pong on that. Oh, right. Yeah. I played Pong on that a lot. And I'm not sure if y'all are Mythic Quest fans, but yes. probably the best episode of the last season was like set in the 70s and a guy is outside a window and he sees the two lines going up and down playing Pong and he sees the entire future of video games happening in that instant yeah and like I'm just like yeah that had to have kind of been what it must have been like to just see this new technology and say there's endless possibilities endless worlds can be created eventually right now the heavy lifting is done on the back of the box where it's just like you are Rick spaceman on a
0: mission <laughs> <Right>. <laughs>
2: and the development of of characters actually came very soon after that because of that and really did change it with the home system release the Magnavox Odyssey it sold for $100 included several games including table tennis the game Pong had been based on again there were a lot of variations of the exact same thing and it sold over 100,000 units in its first year more than 350,000 by the end of 1975 boosted by the success of the table tennis game which was boosted by Pong it just helped the entire industry be lifted up and it was so successful that it led to other companies forming as competitors in the industry mostly just releasing other versions of Pong. There were seven companies releasing home consoles in 1975. In 1977, there were at least 82 with more than 160 models that year alone. And it's estimated over 500 Pong-type home console models were made in this period.
3: That's exactly like the computer industry. It's the same thing.
2: Yeah. Once it starts, they just everyone threw into it and obviously at this point you're not having replaceable cartridges here. The game is built into the system. So that's all you had to make is this one game and this one thing people could take home.
1: And also, why mess with success? I could play Pong right now and have a fantastic time. (laughs) Yeah.
2: (laughs) And yeah, I mean, it really lasted for a while. I mean, to the excess, by 1978, dedicated console sales dropped significantly, in part disrupted by the introduction of programmable systems and handheld electronic games. So of the American companies that have been active in 1977, only Atari, Magnavox, and Coleco remained in the console market by 78. But as interest was waning in the West, they briefly surged in Japan, manufactured by TV companies like Toshiba and Sharp, who had just massive funding behind them because of their years of success. And obviously, Nintendo entered the video game market during this period.
3: Uh-oh. we shouldn't have done that. Yeah.
2: <laughs> What's gonna <laughs> happen? Because
3: <laughs> mm-hmm.
2: well, they had electronic toy product lines, but <laughs> they, they released five models and sold uh, three million of the first four, the highest sales figures of all the first generation video game consoles. And 1978 saw this other huge development in the release of a shooting-based game, Space Invaders. And there had been other shooting games, but what was significant here were three developments that would become standard and essential to future video games. Play regulated by lives instead of a time or a score, gaining extra lives through points, and the tracking of high scores on the machine.
3: That's so true. Like, even just today, like, I mean, I started significantly after this, but the fact that I even will make jokes in my head where I'm like, oh, my HP is low if I'm like tired or sick or something. You know, right. like the yeah. way that <laughs> it filters like into your real life. I just like, that made me think of it, how much it's ingrained into like just my everyday thoughts. And-
2: oh yeah. It became just a huge part of culture. And this led to, obviously with high scores, the ability of more direct competition here.
3: Exactly.
1: Like that, that has been the most revolutionary thing to arcades because it gets people being like, no, I have to be number one and I have to make my name ass. Right? And do
0: this today.
2: <laughs> and Oh yeah. Yeah, and I mean, you're just coming in with so many quarters because you're going to do this until you achieve it. Sarah said it, it was a culture, it was this phenom at, at the time, and it was for for quite a while. Just the level of development here that these were relatively simplistic things, but it absolutely changed the way people thought. Again, if you say arcade now, I had to pause for a minute when I had read that video games weren't popular in arcades because I couldn't picture arcades without video games. I couldn't figure out what was in there aside from pinball machines. But that was it that, that changed it at, at this point. Instead, video games became just this staple of arcades, although pinball was still very popular there.
3: Just a side note before we jump back in. I went to Las Vegas and I wanted to check out this random like arcade warehouse off the strip. So I trekked out there and they had some of the weirdest, in my opinion, creepiest, like I guess, toys or games there. Some of them were like from the 40s and 50s and they were like actual mechanical dolls that would like put the quarter in and then it shoots with air. like and then there's a a little ball like a little plastic ball that comes up and then you have to use this like creepy doll to like kick it and uh like all these mechanical type like very mechanical there was no video game so you reminded me of it oh I have been to an arcade that didn't have any like video game uh like incorporated in it
2: which is incredible yeah
3: it was weird and wild I'm gonna
1: be honest the marionette with the floating ball sounds like a horror movie character I want somebody to like put that shit in a horror movie, because just the idea of a creepy little marionette, just like that you're manipulating in the game. Trapped in a box. Yeah, trapped in a box. (laughs) Don't like it. You walk by, it's there. You walk past, camera goes back to it, it's gone. That's exactly what would happen.
3: Yeah, it's like play the game.
2: Also, the idea of you give it money and it starts breathing is a horrifying concept.
3: Yeah, and it was so loud, like each time it was like (laughs) like every time it moved, you could hear everything, and it was so jarring. They did tons of games like that. There were some that were related even to like disease
2: diseases, like stuff like that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And the, the level ever put into purely mechanical games, I mean, those go back to the 1800s amazingly, and they were obviously a lot more rare then. But no, they was pretty incredible innovations for purely mechanical design and had to work with that for a while. I mean, once video games came out, that became much more
0: of the standard, but there was a lot of innovation before that. Pro teams have millions to spend, and they don't always spend them wisely. But when it comes to a great shave, you don't have to shell out tons of cash. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com slash bluewire. That's harrys.com slash bluewire for a $3 trial set. So
2: we were at, what, Space Invaders here, right? Yes. So at this point, it's popular in America, and it it sold over 60,000 cabinets in 1979 alone. But it was absolutely huge in Japan. Some arcades, which were defined as having at least 10 cabinets of games, were created solely for Space Invaders machine. You'd walk in, that was the only thing they'd have is Space Invaders. It was so insanely popular and then through 1978 through 1982 is considered the golden age of arcade games with several titles being released during this period including asteroids defender missile command hubert and donkey kong and the most popular pac-man and miss pac-man and what was so amazing here was what Wen said it was hubert donkey kong and pac-man were massively successful the, the most successful of the group including miss pac-man in part because they introduced the concept of narratives and characters to video game this led to companies eventually using them as mascots obviously mario and donkey kong became uh the mascot of Nintendo and they had storylines behind them. All you had was this little man climbing up a ladder to a monkey on top.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And don't forget that man is Italian and he is a plumber. He has a profession and a nationality that they had to put in there.
2: And it was incredible because what was interesting about this was it was building off imagination was that it gave you a concept to work from here and you had to fill in a lot of the rest on your own to make this a more complete storyline but they gave you a base here and this was interesting in how interactive it was With it said it suddenly wasn't all on you or all on their form. You were creating this storyline in part together, which was very interesting and completely changed the industry.
3: While well, you guys were playing Mario, which I never got into, my family was like a not a, really a Nintendo family, but I was back there playing Frogger with like no story, nothing. I was just yeah. a frog <laughs> trying to get to the other side of the road.
2: And Frogger <laughs> also massively successful. Yeah, yeah, it was. <laughs> and it, again, a simple game. It was weird too how so many of the games are, essentially the same thing. They just gave it shapes. Like, you know, you're just avoiding things here, but suddenly it's a frog and cars instead of, you know, aliens and guns.
3: Oh my god, the stakes are so much higher.
2: <laughs> yeah. it's No, because suddenly it's like, okay, well, if you lose you have just killed a
1: frog.
3: Yeah, I cried as this... a kid. I... <laughs> that blood is on your
1: hands now. Yeah.
3: They should not have let me play that. I was way too young. Yeah.
2: <laughs> so, in 1978, revenue from coin-operated video games was 308 Million in 1979, it reached 968 million in 1980. 2.8 billion, 4.9 billion in 81, and 7.7 billion in 82. Arcades between 81 and 83 went from 10,000 locations to 25,000, and arcades became the most popular entertainment medium in the entire country. Pop music brought in 4 billion a year, Hollywood films 3 billion, and arcade games were bringing in more than both of them combined.
1: Wow, that's absolutely wild to think about, especially because this is an. 80s money which yeah. is notoriously not today money.
2: Right. No, that th- these numbers were absolutely incredible especially when you consider that these were being played for 10 to 25 cents per game. To achieve that level of money is absolutely insane. But
3: I feel like everyone was on like cocaine and speed and that they were like just addicted to like yeah. putting those coins in and like playing and getting those scores.
2: Yeah. <laughs> it definitely, yeah, and, and the level of bar games as well, definitely helped influence that. And it had this weird crossover of, of adult as well as kid gameplay.
3: I got to
1: ask, what's the most money you've ever spent at an arcade?
2: Um, Let's see. I went there for my birthday once and my parents said they were putting in a, a fixed amount. Then after a while, I realized we were playing way longer. So I have no idea how much, but I'm betting they put in hundreds of dollars that night for me and all of my friends that were there.
1: That's very sweet and very amazing.
2: And far too much. <laughs>
1: I remember one time at a hotel me and my brothers were staying at on like a family vacation. Like we were on vacation, but there was like a little game area, like little arcade area for kids, like at the very base of the place. And we went in there and we played the Simpsons arcade game. And it was an experience where I probably spent at least like I would run upstairs. Like we would assign one person to run upstairs to get more money from my parents and I think we spent probably $60. But we beat it. We beat that motherfucker. (laughs) So
2: my other story, because I was going to respond with what I spent individually, the most I spent individually on a game. It was, we were on vacation with my family and I went downstairs to the arcade they had and played the fucking Simpsons video game.
1: (laughs) Yes, this is why we host a podcast together. (laughs)
2: It was (laughs) for hours. I do not know how much I spent. I'm not sure I beat it. I think I tapped out at a certain point where I was like, all right, this is this is too much money, man. But it was the most I'd ever spent on a single video game of my own money.
1: <laughs> when, when your parents are just looking at you like, no, please don't. That's when you knew you spent too much money. Yeah.
3: <laughs> my dentist, I, I remember they had Sonic the Hedgehog uh, as the the game there. And oh, it was yeah. an actual, it I, I looked like a big setup, like what you would see in an arcade. And I remember my parents would just like, take me there to play Sonic the Hedgehog. <laughs> like, <laughs>
1: <laughs> to the dentist?
2: Yeah.
3: (laughs) i don't even remember always like getting my teeth looked at
1: (laughs) just like hey we're back she's gonna play sonic for a little bit sorry yeah
3: they're like, oh, it's free. That, yeah. They, like, you know, we were you know, we didn't really have money growing up. So they were like, take me to the dentist and it was free if, if you were a patient with them.
2: That, that is incredibly creative. And I love that. I wonder if anybody else tried that. If the dentist were just like, I don't, we don't know what to do about this. Nobody's ever done this before. We don't, we don't have a solution here.
3: I, I don't know. I just think it's so weird.
1: Y'all found a perfect loophole in the
2: system. Yeah.
3: <laughs> it's I, I've i never seen something like that ever before. Maybe because I was born in 91, but it was just like, I remember even as a kid being like, huh, this is odd. I haven't ever like seen this before. And like in a dentist, like waiting room. Okay. I
2: love it. They found a good dentist. I didn't know it was a thing either.
1: (laughs) I would have gone to that dentist. I would have loved going to the dentist. I have a great aunt who we would go over to her house on Christmas. And it was kind of like the side of my family that like, I never see. I would come from a big Catholic family and like, you know, we have like the ones that we see and then we have this part of the family that we only really kind of see on Christmas and like big family gatherings, kinds of things. But she had Sega Genesis and Sonic 2. And I played the hell out of that shit in her little back room <laughs> while my, the rest of my family was doing our traditional Christmas game of poker and chain smoking. Yeah. <laughs>
2: Sega was one that I never had. So I, I only got to play Sonic at friends places. And was the, that was always the one that I wish I could get on my console. But again, I had mostly Nintendo stuff. But no, Sonic was uh, amazing. And it was one that I only got to play so rarely that I still do not know what most of the game is. Pretty much just that one level in the beginning is all I've done.
1: Oh, oh, I should let you know. So Sonic is a very <laughs> cool hedgehog. Yeah, and He collects chaos emeralds, which are emeralds capable of time travel and laser beams. And also his best friend is a fox with two tails his name is tails and also a lot of people want to fuck him i don't understand why but there is millions and millions of pages of erotic sonic art all over the internet you can't escape it you can type in your name the hedgehog and somebody has created an original character about that name the hedgehog with an entire backstory most of the time erotic that is that the legacy like, of Sonic the Hedgehog. I,
2: I had no idea that existed. I have tried to write this joke numerous times about a guy who's trying to propose to his girlfriend, but before he does it, he has to punch Sonic the Hedgehog. And it has absolutely <laughs> <laughs> just fucking killing the mood immediately. And I I have tried this so many times and it has never worked. And I don't know why, because I love the imagery.
3: Well, now you've got more to like chaos, whatever, you know, like I can't remember names of things. So that's my, that's why I think. Oh, you don't know the
1: deep sonic canon off the top of your head. Yeah, you've
3: got, now you've got more context to like pull from.
1: Yeah, now
2: this is what I was missing.
1: The amount of erotic sonic shit is honestly mind boggling and there's so much of it. Yeah, yeah,
3: it's true. I mean, it's like furries, right? It's in the same realm, I feel like we're- Oh
1: yeah, it's definitely in the furry right. realm. But like, it's just weird that like Sonic was like the one that they're like, that's the dude, that guy fucks. Right. He eats chili dogs, that's a part of carry for some reason, and he fucks. Those are the two things you need to know about Sonic the Hedgehog. It's the
3: shoes. It's the shoes. Like, that's what I'm saying. This was
2: a remarkable brand.
1: Sorry, you said history stuff, right? We're here for history stuff. Uh, sure. <laughs>
2: All right, so let's jump back to 1983 because there were a couple things that happened here. So in 1983, there was this crash in the home console market. And this was in part because it was, there was a lack of innovation in games. And there was this sudden new moral panic about video games that tied them to violence and addiction. And you have to remember at this time, the most violent video game in existence had a monkey throwing barrels at a plumber. And the religious right absolutely freaked out over this. So home consoles had the slow start. To begin with as customers were a bit weary after dedicated home consoles with just one game. But Atari started building this up. Uh, They really got their boost in 1980 when they uh, got the license from Taito to create the home version of Space Invaders. It's release quadrupled sales of the Atari system and was the first game to sell over 1 million copies, selling 2.5 million by 1981. And Atari sales went from 119 million in 1979 to 841 million in 1981, 80% of total video game sales across America. what happened after this was so dumb because in order to complete this game their system in the time they wanted they sold Atari to Warner Communications for $28 million to get the influx of cash and Ray Kasser who was with Warner and became president and CEO of Atari didn't really respect the programmers and wouldn't allow their names to be included in the credits of the games they created so this led to one of the first easter eggs in a game when Warren Robinett uh, secretly programmed his name into his game adventure but it also led to four of Atari's programmers to quit and form their own company, Activision. Another group left and formed the Magic in 1981. And he just he, he fucked over the company to begin with. But it wasn't until 1982 that Atari had a real challenge to their control of the market when Coleco released ColecoVision and had licensed the right to develop a version of Donkey Kong from Nintendo as a bundle game with the system. So they only sold 4 million of their system over their lifetime compared to Atari's 30 million. It shouldn't have been a competitor, but what happened was Atari got scared from this when the, and it, it just led directly to the crash. When Activision split off. They were sued by Atari for taking their concepts but settled out of court giving Atari a portion of sales essentially licensing their work as a third-party seller on Atari system. And this led to at least 100 other companies claiming to be developing software for the Atari 2600. And this was expected to lead to a huge boost in sales. So Atari started licensing out the right to create these video games to take a percentage. But 10% of games produced 75% of sales because some of the companies hired experts in game designs but most were staffed with cheaper novice programmers backed by venture capitalists without any experience in the field at all. So this led to the most popular system being watered down with this huge amount of poor quality games and shaking the reputation. Retailers had to discount the prices to get rid of inventory of these bad games, which impacted the sales price of the high quality games, since consumers would be drawn to purchase bargain bin price games over good ones at a regular price and completely tank the market. Because at this point, people could no longer trust in the quality of home video games, even as a concept.
1: This just makes me think of, you've heard of the ET official video game, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so you know the
2: story with that? No, I remember seeing the image of the game. What happened with it?
1: There was an E.T. video game that was so bad that they eventually just had to fucking fill a landfill with them. <laughs> That's not a joke. They they literally were just like, we have to destroy every copy of this motherfucker because like nobody was buying them. It was ruining like the, the brand of E.T. for the studio. And wow. they had to just get rid of it and they like just dug a hole and they put the game games in the hole. <laughs> <laughs>
2: (laughs) That is absolutely incredible. And I cannot imagine how you make a game bad enough that you have to destroy its existence from the planet.
1: (laughs) It's like that Jerry Lewis movie, The Day the Clown Cried. Everyone knows about this, right?
2: No, please tell us the Jerry Lewis story. (laughs)
1: Okay, then we'll speed through history because I know that because I don't want us to run too long. But Jerry Lewis wanted to make a dramatic film. So he made a movie about a clown (laughs) in Nazi Germany that entertains the children in the concentration camps. But eventually, he has a change of heart, but he knows that he can't do that. So what he does is he entertains the children as like a Pied Piper kind of figure and stays with them in a gas chamber, which is how the movie ends. And he He saw the cut of this movie, and he keeps it in a safe in his office and refuses to let anyone else see it. No one has ever seen a copy of The Day the Clown Cried, and no one will ever see a copy of The Day the clown cried and can you imagine putting all of your money into making a movie that's going to be your oscar vehicle and then being like oh oh fuck this oh no this was this is a bad idea all the way down and having to keep it in a safe close to you at all times
2: wow that is just i mean a horrifying enough premise i feel like you should have seen that coming but also i don't really want to see a jerry lewis <laughs> drama to begin with but oh wow oh.
1: About a clown and a concentration (laughs) camp. It sounds like a parody of an Oscar bait film.
2: Oh yeah. Oh god, that's horror. Honestly, I feel like it could have been better as just a really dark comedy. (laughs) Like that is such a disturbing premise.
1: Can you imagine me, Roberto Benigni, and making life is beautiful just as a (laughs) fuck you to Jerry Lewis?
2: Oh, that is just just awful, and I would love to be able to see that. <laughs> I, I mean, Jerry Lewis has died now. I, I'm amazed that has not come out somehow. But all right, we're obviously going to be doing an episode on that in the future, and just Jerry yes. Lewis as a whole. There's plenty there. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so I want to skip ahead in a second, so let me just wrap up some of the 80s here. It's in 1983, there's $3 billion in sales, and that dropped to $100 million in 1985 because of Atari's fuck-up. Warner even sold off Atari to Commodore International. Magnavox and Coleco had to leave the industry entirely, and because most of the companies producing games in Japan had a much longer history, they were able to survive the drop in sales, letting them become the dominant force in the video game industry for several years, particularly with Nintendo's introduction of the rebranded Famicom, now the Nintendo Entertainment System. And they also, specifically because of what Atari did, maintained strict publishing rights to avoid any of the pitfalls that led to this massive crash. So after this, you have computer games developing at the same time, the BBC Micro with Acorn the Commodore 64. This also had development with a lot of independent publishers because BBC started pushing this idea of computer education, which was fantastic, even back the development of the BBC Micro. And this led to a lot of bedroom designers. They started designing games from their home. And this was small publishing and distribution companies were established to help them sell. Ubisoft even started out doing this as a distributor in France. And computer games took the lead after the console crash. And to counter the morale panic, educational games were created like Oregon Trail and Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego. Then with IBM, there was this explosive growth with open architecture and compatible machines. It allowed software software developers to write code that adjust the IBM PC compatible specifications and have to worry about which make or model is being used. So yeah, they, they improved graphics, color, speed, introduced dedicated sound cards, all of which enhanced this game experience, and the first major video game publishers arose out of that. We do have 90s in the development of the CD-ROM, and 90s, and uh, Nintendo trying to partner with Sony, and then right before their release, the deal fell through, or right before the announcement, the deal f- fell through when basically everyone had realized that the CD-ROM was far more efficient. could get this produced in like a week and sent out and the cartridge took three months and it fell through so Nintendo no longer had a product and Sony released the PlayStation with the CD-ROM that was not only more efficient and could have better graphics it holds so much more data but also because they could produce it in like a week they just had to make a limited amount and if it was popular they built more meanwhile Nintendo had to build their cartridges way in advance and predict sales because if it turned out to be popular there was no way to build more before the audience would lose interest.
1: I do remember the first time I ever saw a PlayStation game, it blew my fucking mind. Oh
3: yeah, me too. Yeah.
2: <laughs> it was an absolutely huge shift in the game and Nintendo really just kind of faltered after this because after this they created the Super Nintendo after this to counter the PlayStation. I think about the PlayStation 2 and the GameCube. The N64, they actually did good. They they held the ground here. They got GoldenEye, which was significant, obviously, as early development in first-person shooters. And during this late 90s, early 2000 period, they start developing genres that are not now common like the first-person shooters with 3D graphics. Adventure games became prominent. The first immersive sim games were built, and the idea of stealth games, real-time strategy games, plus survival horror games like Resident Evil. So it was just this massive boost in the industry, along with Microsoft starting to worry that the video game systems would replace the home computer. So they released the Xbox to stay in the game. It became the second best selling system of all time, and they lost money on every single one. Wait, how? Because they sold it for uh, less than it cost to make.
1: That's a bad business model. (laughs) I'm going to say it. We're not afraid to go there here. (laughs) I'll say it. Bad
2: business model. So some of the companies, like including PlayStation, started going, basically it was called the razor and Blades model of sales here where you sell the original product at essentially cost and then you make your money back on the add-ons, the additional blades. So they're supposed to make your money back on the games. But Sony was doing it pretty much at cost, but Microsoft spent so much producing this to compete with Sony. They had to take a loss on every single console. And again, they're selling over hundred million consoles. I'm
1: just now realizing that that razor blade strategy that they use of selling the console at cost and then being like, but then you got to pay for the games is the system they still use to be like, here's your free cell phone game. But to get past the third level, you got to give us a dollar every hour for the rest of your fucking life. (laughs) Well, and and
2: that was one of the the next big developments. Oh, by the way, though Microsoft did lose money there, it got their foot in the market so significantly and they made their money back on games so it didn't end up being problem for them. Obviously, they also had so much capital behind them that it was well worth it to have a place in this market. After this, we're going to skip a bit over the MMORPGs because it's just a lot of data and, like, we get it. The internet was suddenly there. People could start playing online so they did. And get to what Wen had, had mentioned here because games had started being developed so massively and they started taking on some of the concepts from Hollywood where they were putting $40 million into a production, just trusting they'd make it back on the back end. And this became massive massive investments, but programming was also getting easier on the independent side. So you had people that were making games from forming Kickstarters and were able to produce out of their bedrooms and work with independent publishers. So you had this new market of casual gaming appearing at the same time. Like in 1997, every Nokia phone had Snake programmed on it. But when Apple came out with the iPhone in 2007, 2008, they everybody started the App Store. 2009, Apple introduced in-app purchases, Angry Birds and Bejeweled, were immediate huge successes. And the concept of microtransactions, where it was that you can play for free, but you can advance farther by paying a bit more, or you've only got limited plays so that you can pay to uh, play longer. And just the level of money they made from people putting in a dollar to get this one digital item was insane. And especially from these independent publishers that were not, it, it, it was interesting because it wasn't really competing. It was a separate market and, and it, it made it so much more accessible because pretty much at this point, everyone was going to have a cell phone. So it allowed people to play games and, and be considered gamers. And this is obviously, uh, leads us a bit to where it went wrong because there got to be this stigma of what really is a real game and what isn't, that you have to be the system and complex or on a computer and immersed when like half the market share is in fact involved in mobile games themselves. And just these simple ones that you can do while you're at work or, or, or on a bus.
3: That sounds exactly what a mobile games player would say.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, that did lead us to where it went wrong. So Sarah, where did it go wrong?
3: There's so many ways. Yeah. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I think like your fact where I didn't know it started that early, the whole games are bad for you and violence and they're connected to violent acts and all that stuff. I didn't know it started that early, but it makes sense for, you know, religious folk to be like, hmm, something else is getting more attention than us and it's like more popular and they're having fun. Yeah. Yeah. No.
2: <laughs> so no, I mean, that, that started very early into the, the game world. Look,
1: in their defense though, Sonic the Hedgehog does canonically in his games, fuck human women. <laughs> that is a fact. He has a human woman love interest. And it's not just him. Other characters have human love interests and there's no That's reason love. for this.
3: That's love. That's not violence. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean, apparently they were right.
2: According to information we just learned from when there are thousands of <laughs> examples of people getting so fucking horny from Sonic that they had to write and draw fan fiction about it. <laughs> it apparently it it apparently yeah. they were right. <laughs> no, but I, I mentioned the, the segue into mobile games because because what you had mentioned beforehand was the toxic culture behind it. And I think there are a lot of, you're right, there are a lot of places we go for where it went wrong, but the stigma associated with what really is real and isn't real. Gaming, the intense culture of racism and sexism and the way that it is just so immersed and enclosed on itself and the fact that they are so incredibly online. The spread and reach of this vitriol was massive, leading to things like the Gamergate campaign, which was just massive hatred towards women spread out across the entire internet and claiming this intense gatekeeping of what isn't real gaming or real gamers. And it led to just awful stuff.
1: That was a great breakdown from you Andrew about women in video gaming while we have Sarah right
2: here. I'm I'm setting up here for oh details. Oh my god, I love hearing
3: <laughs> men talk about topics that us women have been talking about for years. Oh
2: my god. Alright, we're cutting this whole section <laughs> no, out. No, no, no
3: i totally <laughs> Yeah, it's like the culture is still toxic today. And I sometimes wonder, I'm like, is it a video game thing? Or is it just like an internet thing? And now it's
0: yeah.
3: <laughs> like spread, you know, also through video games. And it's funny because like there's so many industries that are typically like male dominant. I put that in like air quotes that it's hard for me to think of video games that way. I think of it more as an internet problem rather than like a video game problem. Because I see video games as like, I would invite my friends over and we're all going to play Wii together, you know? The Wii was a big thing, really. Let's let's have, a, it doesn't matter if you're a boy or a girl or anything like that. But of course, you know, I play first-person shooters. So you go on and they're like, what headset are you using? Oh, what like, you know, what are your macros set up on your computer? What are, like, obviously there, it is true. There is still all that hyper, like critical, very, very negative culture that unfortunately does lead to even worse places like misogyny and racism. But I do think... I think that there the kind of is a gray line with internet and even in comics, like I'm also a big comics fan. It's like that culture kind of ties in with like video games. So I don't know if I like blame video games really.
2: Well, I, I'm not sure I, I thought it was the fault of video games as, as much as the, the culture that developed out of it because the games aren't responsible for this aspect. There's nothing about the video game that at least most video games that are inherently racist or sexist. It's, it's the culture that was built on originally of being for men, I think, and men wanted to claim this. But I I suppose it's probably not much different than the level of sexism you face just as a woman doing stand-up and as a woman doing comedy on the internet
3: or like a, just being a woman like people don't like that i don't know why people <laughs> don't like that for
2: some reason so so yeah i mean if the replies i know you get on twitter are probably not worse <laughs> than the stuff you'd get from video games i think it just kind of homogenized into one large culture around it and it was one that they were kind of able to stake their claim in and claim is like kind of their thing which it this was strange because it, it kind of happened as it was expanding to more and more people, where they tried to claim it as their own because it got access to so much more of the world. And I think they, one, obviously didn't want that. And also, I think maybe everyone else in the world was just kind of content with it being for everyone else in the world. It was like, this is great. We all get to do the parts of it that we like. So the people that came out with the strongest voices were the ones that were racist and sexist and all they had in their personality was the claim that they enjoyed video games. So it became this epicenter.
1: Yeah, I think it, in the- this is probably just my opinion, but comics, video games, like computers just in general, those are all things that can be an outlet for one person to be doing alone by themselves. And I think that when you have people who like are just doing it by themselves, there's this idea of, I am the only person in the world who is enjoying this to this degree, yeah. <laughs> to, to this level. I'm the only one who can do it because I'm the only one who's witnessing me doing it. You know, you don't yeah. sit around and just go like, oh, everyone who likes basketball must be doing some extreme racism behind <laughs> the scenes. Because like, it's like a social thing. Like everyone's hanging out, that you all see each other, you see all the different fans, but you have a bunch of just white guys sitting around being like, well, I like this. If I were to expand the realm, I would assume it's other white guys who are also liking it. So then when it does expand and you're now able to visually see other people doing it, and it's not the community that you built in your head to appease yourself, you're probably just like, what the fuck are you doing liking my stuff? You're touching all <laughs> of my stuff. This is all for me. Spider-Man? Only I could ever relate to Spider-Man. And like, oh, and now spider man's black, so you're going to take him away from me? Like, that's yeah. like this whole weird mindset, because everything was made for me, and now it's yours? I don't want to share that.
2: I think that's a, a very good way to put it, and I think one of the, the strange aspects of it is that racists have their own section of, of everything, you know, or, or sexist. That's, that's how they form all of these racist and sexist hate groups. That's why they're out there. The weird thing about it is, I think that was made it different for video games, is that when they exist in other groups, they're kind of like, oh, we're the part of this that is the racist sexist group although you know they deny that for video games or for players that are part of this they were the ones that tried to claim all of gaming as their territory and it was like no you're just a you're just a hate group that happened to meet through video games that that doesn't make any of it yours <laughs> i mean you could have just as easily met at the coffee shop it's you can hate wherever you want but it, it it was this one place where they seemed to really feel comfortable claiming this whole realm as theirs even though they're not the majority they just also are extremely online so because of that have the ability and the temperament to spread that hate far more than other groups. Where most people can just kind of hate silently, There's very much like, oh, we have so many message boards because that's what existed for video games, so we're going to take this to the entire internet.
3: It was just a vehicle, right? So we'll yeah. look for any vehicle. That's why like, I always defend video games. I always defend just the creation, the industry. So I try to, like, I think we've done a really good job of the distinction.
2: <laughs> oh yeah, this is not a problem with, the, with video games. This is a problem with racist sexists that play video games they just try to claim it as serious but for video games themselves I think the development has been incredible and it has allowed this level of creativity and connectivity It's just amazing to be able to see the collaboration of work between developers and players there's so much beauty in games now that it's amazing to be able to see the level of amazing things that are being created both by users and the game developers themselves so it's a fantastic thing it's just one of the things that as always has a really bad aspect to it but it has nothing to do thankfully with the games themselves it's just a culture of it yeah
3: And then I have like a bone to pick with. I mean, people might not agree, but franchise games and uh, like remasters, I feel like that is where video games specifically, like the video game goes wrong because I don't know how many remasters of Call of Duty or like Modern Warfare or, you know, like all those games that I can go through where they're not giving me a new video game. There's no new plot. There's no new anything, not even a new map. And they're just like, hey, it's remastered. We've taken that old game that you loved and like now it has better graphics and we want you to pay, you know, triple the price of like, I just, I feel like the last three years and we're finally starting to get a lot of new stuff, but definitely on the main, like major consoles, it was just remastered, pumping out, making that sweet, sweet cash as many times (laughs) as they can with the same exact same game. And that drives me insane. And it makes me like very very
2: angry from like a capitalist standpoint. <laughs> oh, sure. Well, really isn't that, that there, <laughs> there is not new creation behind the same product that they're launching as if it's new. And as you said, for for ridiculous markups So at the same price that, that like it's not even like, hey, here's five dollars. We'll add in a patch and you get the updated one. It's like you have to do this exact same thing all over again, but slightly shinier. And that the markup on that is ridiculous.
1: And I'll go so far as to say that Silent Hill 2 got ruined in the remaster because they just made it so clear what everything was. And part of the fun of that game is not being able to see where it's shit.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you said the franchise games too. You think there's a certain point where they're, what, they just bottom out? Or they lose the creativity? I mean, some of them have been massively successful. Like,
3: I'll watch the movie. I don't know. I don't need to play the movie. Oh,
2: I was thinking the fr- franchise games in terms of multiple series in a game. Like, oh no, when the movie franchise turned into games.
3: Yeah, like a, like a whole, we talked about the Spider-Man game. I think I played it and then I was like, oh yeah, I know Spider-Man shoots webs. Like, I get it. Yeah. There's nothing (laughs) new, really. (laughs) Like for me, part of the fun of playing a video game is escaping into like something new and seeing like what's going to happen. But replaying the movie or knowing like I know Spider-Man can do this or it doesn't matter if it's the Iron Man suit. Like I already know all of that. So for me, it's just purely they just want money.
2: Yeah, I I mean, because I would love the, the idea of this is the thing I love. I get to play it myself. But when it's an aspect of this is the same thing I just watched, but now I'm pushing buttons to get it. There's a bit of a loss there that, that you don't actually feel like you're building something new out of it. It's just the same thing that you watched before. I
3: mean, I also know people that love franchise video games, but for me, those two, the remasters and like the franchise, franchise where it's the exact same story. I just, uh, I think that that's where video games get, has gone wrong.
2: Though I did love GoldenEye and that was pretty much just the movie. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I never beat that. And yeah, I mean, I, I hadn't played the Spider-Man. I've, I've heard people, that's one that people do really love. I'm trying to think of what games, I, because most of the times I remember them popping up.
3: There's Star Wars, the Star Wars games. I actually really enjoyed, but I did not watch the movies when I was little. So that might be why. Oh.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so you got to experience the world for the first time as the characters. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Oh, that's really interesting because
2: I know some of the stories, for the most part, it was one of those where they came out and people are generally disappointed because there's so much for it to live up to. That's good. Next time there's a really successful movie, I'm just not going to watch it and hope a video game eventually comes out.
3: Yeah, do the opposite. (laughs) It's going to happen. We all know it's going to happen. The movie and then the game comes out a few years later.
1: (laughs) Andrew, I want you to act like really incredulous, like, oh, it's a movie
3: now? Yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, they made a movie out of Spider-Man
2: 3? That's cool. Cool. Just take it even further, and they do like a Moby Dick video game, and it's like this was a book first. This is
3: incredible. <laughs> yeah, I remember when that was a video game. Like, <laughs> start from
1: that angle. Oh, is this a novelization of Moby Dick? That's lame. I love the game, though. That's
2: a <laughs> no- novelization of Moby Dick, the video game. <laughs> <laughs> I swear to God, I want to make that game and write that book right now. That sounds absolutely incredible. Like the worst thing in the world, but I got to make that.
3: Yeah, wow, this game, I just wish it was like written down, you know? Like I feel like it could make a really good book.
2: (laughs) It's too many details. It's got to be like 500 pages. You can't fit all of this into a game.
1: Oh, the first line's an Easter egg because in the video game, you press A to call someone Ishmael and then that's the first line of the book. That's awesome.
3: (laughs) Oh my gosh, this is very off topic, but I... I saw that someone posted a video and they were saying that the, in the beginning of the Bible, it actually says, it's almost like a once upon a time. So it isn't like the story, it's a story. Yeah. And they're like, for It's been mistranslated and everyone thinks it as the story, but it actually originally was written as like a story. So this is something that like happened, you know, like one time in one place. It doesn't mean that it's universal.
2: We should absolutely do an episode on interpretations, because the mm-hmm. number of things that are that like, hey, by the way, if you look into the Aramaic definition of this, none of this means any of this.
1: I did appreciate I read something recently from a priest that was just like, apparently there's a lot of jokes throughout the Bible, that but it's gotten mistranslated so many times that like you don't actually can realize it's a joke until you actually get the correct translation. <laughs> All
2: right. I would read the Bible if anyone had more jokes in it. God, I mean, I'm Jewish, but come on. <laughs> you
3: know what? The video game is better. <laughs>
2: the jesus video game
1: <laughs> infinite lives that's not fair yeah
2: <laughs> god damn that's a good line when fit that into your stand-up somehow <laughs> That's got to be used to get.
1: (laughs) Will do. Okay, so we've gone through the history. We've gone through where it went wrong. So we have our final segment, In Their Defense, where we each have to try to defend the thing that we have been shitting on for most of this podcast. So uh, guests do get first dibs if you want to give it a shot. You
3: know what? Men have been ruling things for so long that, like, maybe we shouldn't shake up things because (laughs) (laughs) stuff has been going out. I've been enjoying the games. I've been enjoying the way it's going. So it's like, maybe we should just hear them out.
2: <laughs> maybe we should just hear out the toxic masculinity trolls yeah. on the internet. Maybe if
3: we just change our perspective and that it's like, don't see it as toxic, but like as something more positive, you know, I find like a lot of people, you know, usually women tend to use negative words like toxic masculinity, you know, maybe, maybe if we just get the benefit of the doubt, know. <laughs> yeah. We can continue. It's been so good, right? Like so good for us. So yeah, I would
2: not really change anything. That, that is a really solid argument. When what, what have you got?
1: Okay, I'm going to try to. I'm going to try to do uh, something about. We we hit two topics. I'm not going to defend racism and everyone else who looks like me who does video games. Yeah. Uh, so I'm going to go through the other route of franchise games. Uh, sure. And just say GoldenEye. That game fucking slaps. I love. That that game spider-man have you ever just like unwound by just swinging through the streets of new york city for like 45 minutes to an hour i'm not even playing the main missions i'm just swinging around and stopping (laughs) bugging every now and then and it's delightful another thing i mentioned it earlier and i said it was embarrassing but i did play all of the kingdom hearts which is like the most fucking fever dream of a combination of what if we took the Disney movies, but then we added anime to it? And for some reason, that was right up my alley. But then you see photos of me as a kid, and you're like, "Yeah, that would be right up this dude's alley." and yeah. That is my defense <laughs> of franchise video games.
2: That honestly, you said Kingdom Hearts is like, "Oh yeah, when obviously played Kingdom Hearts." That's <laughs> <laughs> that catches me off guard.
1: <laughs> and you look like you'd play Kingdom Hearts. What the fuck does that mean? Yeah. <laughs>
2: That's like the most hurtful, obscure thing you could say to somebody. If I was told I look like I played Kingdom Hearts, I would just go cry immediately. It's the worst heckle I could imagine. All right, I'm going to hit the the other aspect here. Imagine that your whole personality is based on the fact that you find a cartoon drawing of Zelda attractive. This is what you formed (laughs) the basis of your personality on. (laughs) And then you go on the internet and someone who has not spent 40,000 hours playing says, did you know Zelda's the boy? How do you not have an emotional breakdown at what you've based your sense of reality on? Look, is it massively stupid and you are clearly in the wrong and none of this makes any sense? Sure. But what are you going to do? Develop a healthy personality? You don't have time for that. You got to go stare at photos of Zelda and try <laughs> to learn to draw so you can make your own because most of these aren't naked enough. So, <laughs> so what alternative do you have but to turn that disturbing perspective inward and release that hate outward because you can no longer get horny by normal real life women or men it's just now entirely what you imagine zelda to be because she doesn't challenge your views on reality
1: Uh (laughs) that was that was very good thank you that's what i got
2: All right, well, I think that covered it for us. We've got video games, our personal experience, the history, where it went wrong, and some pretty creative in their defenses. <laughs> Sarah Wren, thank you so much for coming on today. It was so good to see you again. Hopefully, uh, we'll get to do something live and in person before too long. Are you in Canada now or New York?
3: I'm like back and forth. That's just, yeah, either New York or- Back and yeah, forth. Yeah, just back and forth. Of
2: course, you're you're working all over. All right, well, next time you're in Chicago, we'll have you on whatever shows when and I are doing, and hopefully, uh, we're both talking about getting out to New York sometime for some shows, so we'll 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 try and schedule it out when you're in town. Sarah Wren, thank you so much for being here, guys. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this, please subscribe. Give us five stars. It helps us out so much. We also have a Patreon down in the show notes that helps us keep this show going with some exclusive content out for and you.
3: For one dollar, you can get no of it's,
2: it's that's it. <laughs> Patreon content with microtransactions is coming up next. <laughs> But it's currently, guys, only $5. It is remarkably affordable. Uh, (laughs) We're going to be back next week. We hope you'll join us then. When I'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.